You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Well, hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis, the first, of course, after a short summer break. Now, the trouble is, you can't really take a break from the Middle East, North Africa or Gulf states. Uh, do so and something earth shattering is liable to happen. And lo and behold, it did in August. Um, the US and allies pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban retook Kabul after a 20 year so-called war on terror. We'll talk about Afghanistan, not raking over what the world already knows, hopefully, but looking instead at the role of Qatar in context with other countries when it comes to repatriation, facilitating international travel, and obviously not to mention food supplies and other essentials. We'll also talk about Lebanon's path to recovery, the murder of online activist Nizar Banat, uh, and the impact, of course, on the Palestinian Authority. Then we'll head to North Africa, to Morocco, and the elections there. And we'll also have a line or two uh, from Harry on his afterthoughts, which I know I'm sure, uh, like me, you will find very entertaining. Oh, Harry, um, what should I start with, really? I mean, I need a comfortable chair ahead of that little lot, don't I? You certainly do, uh, James. It's a pleasure to be talking uh, to you again uh, on Middle East analysis. And yes, we did take a short break, but uh, you're absolutely right. I wish politicians would realize that they need a holiday uh, as well. But uh, things always are always astir in the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions. And this year was certainly no exception. Of course, adding an extra layer to everything that usually happens in that uh, part of the world, and that is the COVID pandemic. Yeah, very true. But picking up on Afghanistan, as obviously we should, it's funny because over the the 10, 11, 12 years we've been broadcasting, we sort of steer clear a bit and you've sort of rather unashamedly held your hand up and said, well, look, I'm not the world's leading expert on on Afghanistan. Um, So we don't often talk about it, do we? No, we don't, because technically speaking, well, geographically, I do not include Afghanistan in the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions, which is my usual mantra when I say anything on uh, my backyard, as I call it, Uh, but also because, as I've said often enough, and you've just mentioned it yourself, I'm no expert on Afghanistan, and there are so many armchair experts uh, on television, on radio, on podcasts, on SoundCloud. Everywhere you turn, there is always an expert ready to give an opinion that I thought if I can at least circumscribe my so-called expertise or observations or experiences which basically build up to something concrete to the region I know a bit more about and leave Afghanistan for people who know much, much more about it, then that would be useful for me and it would be much better for our auditors and our viewers. But of course, uh, I suspect that the reason you're bringing Afghanistan into our September Middle East analysis is because of the involvement of the Gulf cooperation uh, countries in the repatriation and in all the efforts, both political and humanitarian, that are associated with this remarkable and very rapid, very fast change of fortunes 
in uh, Afghanistan just uh, a month ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm sure even Biden was taken somewhat by surprise at the speed. I mean, the inevitability, yes, but the speed at which the Taliban retook um, vast areas and then Kabul, of course, and, and the scenes at the airport, which I think everyone uh, have, has been indelibly marked on many people. And of course, in, in this country, we focus very much on, on the UK repatriation efforts. So I was interested when you wanted to talk about Qatar. So from my slightly ignorant perspective, I'm going to ask you to explain that role to us. Well, it's interesting, uh, James, because in a sense, you pretty much wrote the headline uh, to that in your uh, intro uh, when you said about how Qatar has helped. And indeed, I mean, if there are two countries that have really helped bridge the West with uh, Afghanistan and uh, the Taliban regime nowadays, as well as the neighborhood, and of course, the neighborhood uh, includes uh, Uh, China, it includes Pakistan, and Qatar has really played a very, very key role in all of this, so much so that it's even outperformed the expectations of many Western analysts uh, and observers. And it's not only a question of Qatar having facilitated the repatriation of a lot of Americans, as well as European uh, nationals, out of Kabul airport into various other countries, sometimes via uh, Qatar, that it has certainly done. It's not only that it has provided technical know-how and uh, expertise to try and run uh, Kabul airport for international arrivals and departures, which it has done too, nor for that matter the number of uh, Qatari airways planes that came carrying food supplies and medicines and what have you. All that it has done and it has been thanked and uh, thanked over and over again by everybody from the U.S. Secretary of uh, State, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, every single European politician, including our own then Dominic Raab, who was Foreign Secretary, all of them went to Doha thanked the Qatari officials for their help. And of course, Qatar was at the forefront of all these efforts, but there were other people who were helping. As I said, Turkey was helping. Other countries were trying to provide some facilitation. I wouldn't exclude uh, Pakistan from this fray because it has a big uh, interest in the uh, region and organizations from uh, the European Union to the WHO. So all this has been done and Qatar has been at the forefront. It's been pretty much the image of this transformation from a previous regime that pretty much sank almost immediately and the new Taliban regime with all the tensions and frictions within that regime between the conservatives and the modernists, the old generation and the new generation. But one thing I would like to remind our listeners as well, James, is that Qatar didn't suddenly descend into Kabul airport because it alone could provide all these. There are other countries that could have done it, but do remember that for at least two years, there were pretty much regular negotiations, meetings, conversations happening in Doha, in the capital of Qatar, between the Americans, 
and the Taliban leadership facilitated by the Qatari foreign minister and other politicians. So there was already a two-year sense of acquaintance, sense of familiarity, which made it quite natural that for a country that hosted those negotiations for well over two years, that it would then take uh, a major role in the uh, in the bridge that was formed between a regime that pretty much sank and a new regime that came and which tried with difficulty because you're absolutely right the scenes we saw at Kabul airport were hectic but people forget that this is almost like a revolution you're bringing a completely new sense of politics into the country with people afraid they want to run out, people want to leave because they are uh, foreign citizens and nationals. So it's not easy to do this in a very uh, clinical way where uh, people would queue like we would at the post office or in the supermarket or wherever. So I think it was well done and I very much uh, commend uh, Qatar for having really outperformed many people's expectations, both regionally, but also internationally. Well, one question I do have for you on that, Harry, is obviously with our so-called Western democratic values and our, you know, our laws, the way we look at things, obviously that's not really in tandem with the way the Taliban operates with its laws and the way it looks at life. Do you think the likes of Qatar, who, who I think you've rightly commended for its role in this, will bridge as well that understanding between the sort of, you know, the, the, the Middle East, and if we do stretch Afghanistan into that, versus the sort of Western ideals. A Qatar a, a bit of a, a sort of, I don't know, a, a, a mediating factor ongoing, or were they only part of this transition? No, I think they will be ongoing. I think they have a key role to play, and that role has not finished just because the airport is functioning pretty much Uh, properly at the moment or because a lot of the, not all though, mind you, it's still happening, it's still ongoing, but a lot of the people, foreign nationals and residents of the US with green cards or people who are going back uh, to Europe and who want to leave because they're afraid, they're worried for their own security, it's still ongoing, but the majority of them have already left. I mean, the, the Qatari role, in my view, doesn't stop there, it continues. And if you were to ask me why, which is pretty much, I think, the depth of your question, it's not only because, as I said, there is nobody else who can do it. Yes, Qatar is a small uh, country with a lot of resources and therefore a lot of money that it can deploy to facilitate this uh, transformational exercise. But however, what is interesting in uh, Qatar also, when you use the word mediation, is that here is a country that is an Arab country that is part of the Gulf Cooperation Council that has a clear Muslim uh, character to it, a, a bit more than some of the other GCC countries, if the truth be told. And at the same time, one that has the biggest uh, American military base in the country and one that is quite au fait with Western 
countries and relations and ties. So in a sense, it understands the West, but it is also acceptable to a movement uh, such as the Taliban movement. And I have still some pain at changing movement into government or regime because it really hasn't yet uh, come about. It's in the process of being formed. But Qatar has that Muslim character, background, heritage that would make it an acceptable party for dialogue with the Taliban and the uh, more radical Muslim uh, political leadership in Afghanistan. And therefore, it can find language with both sides. And by finding language with both sides, it can then play a far better mediating role than many other countries that I could uh, think of. And in a sense, uh, James, what you could add to that is to remind me and to remind our listeners that we have in the past spoken about the TIF, the SPAT, the rift between uh, Qatar and three of the other five uh, GCC countries. Well, as you well know, and we covered this on Middle East Analysis, there was a famous meeting, the Al-Ula meeting in Saudi Arabia a while back, where there was a reconciliation between all six uh, GCC uh, countries, and I think that also speaks to what is happening uh, today, because at a time when world politics is pretty much up in the air, where we know that U.S. Uh, power is receding, its influence is receding, when we know that a lot of the GCC countries consider Iran as a potential uh, threat when we know that there is this thing about normalization with some GCC countries, namely uh, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, which I think is also in part an indication that they feel threatened, that the Americans are no longer uh, keeping their back and therefore they have to look elsewhere. Put all this uh, together and it becomes quite clear to me that uh, Qatar is really one of the countries that would be able to render this service, create this pontoon bridge between uh, Afghanistan and some of the Western countries, particularly the United States and Europe, which themselves do not yet have uh, any communication with the Taliban movement. So uh, yes, I, I can only say that uh, with what has happened in Afghanistan and what is happening in that part of the world, I think we are witnessing the redrawing of the geopolitics of that region. And I think uh, this is not the end of the story. This is the beginning of a new chapter in that story. And I really don't know where it will lead us because these days everything uh, can go in different directions. Well, you know, your question post-spat and relating that was actually better than mine, but I will ask you my one as well, which was perhaps one that involves a little bit of cynicism. Yes, Qatar has clearly gone in from a humanitarian perspective, but surely there was also that vested interest post-blockade to show both the West and its near neighbours of its legitimacy in being a player in the region. 
Of course it has. Of course it has. I mean, that's normal. It's what states do. They have to undergird their own uh, credibility, their own importance in the world map. And uh, Qatar has done that. And actually, and we have talked about this, I think, in the past in different ways, James, when I've said that the, the embargo, the blockade, the spat, call it what you will, we're past it to some extent now. But all that was ill-advised and was really unnecessary. But what it did, it actually helped Qatar better its own performance, its own relations with the outside world, and its own ability to use its resources more judiciously. And uh, uh, now, I mean, you've got the World Cup uh, happening in uh, Qatar next year. You've got all these meetings that are happening there. You've got this example of the uh, mediation. I mean, Qatar is by far playing a role far, far bigger than its size. But I think that's part of what is happening in this region at the moment. Um, the Saudis and the Qataris, James, are pretty much uh, friends now. Uh, I think they realize that what joins them together, what binds them together is by far more than what separates them. There are tensions still with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, but I think that Qatar has stood its ground and it has stood its ground in a remarkable uh, way to show that it can actually be a bridge. It does not have to sell out its own principles for the sake of its own interests. And this is basically where I think uh, Qatar has outperformed many other players uh, in the region. Do you know, I mean, albeit off the back of a negative situation, certainly one with, with distasteful things going on, um, at least, and maybe rarely, we seem to be talking about a positive intervention, Harry. So a little bit of positivity on Middle East analysis uh, doesn't go amiss. A little bit of positivity, uh, James. I fully agree with you. And uh, let me just say, I mean, the reason why uh, Blinken and Austin and... Uh, uh, the Danish, the Spanish, the British, the French, uh, all these people headed to Doha to say thank you uh, to Qatar. It's not because they've suddenly become converted uh, to a Qatari admiration or fan club, but it's because they realize not only that Qatar has played and plays an important role by virtue of its resources, both human and material, but also because they realize, and particularly the Americans most of all, realize that uh, had it not been for Qatar, they would have had a lot of bigger problems getting the majority of their people out of Afghanistan and into safer uh, countries. So they know they owe Qatar. And that IOU is a debt that means that any attempt in the future by GCC countries to try yet again to ostracize uh, Qatar with the West 
is going to be a total fiasco because the West has realized the role that this small country has played and therefore it will think twice before uh, saying anything that is inimical with its own interests. And uh, I remember, maybe I could stop here, I remember when the spat broke out a few years ago and the blockade started outlandish and silly, though it was, I repeat, Trump, then uh, newly elected as president of the United States, sided completely with the blockading countries, with the United Arab Emirates, with Saudi Arabia, and said that Qatar is a rogue country. A few months down the line, even Trump, the irascible, unpredictable, Twitter-friendly Trump, basically changed completely the conversation and suddenly started talking as if... uh, Uh, Qatar is uh, Trump's best friend. Why? Because they realize, the Americans as well as anybody else, that what Lord Palmerston said many, many, many decades ago here in the UK, countries have interests, not friendships. And I think that is playing out in Afghanistan. It has played out during the blockade. And it is also and I don't want you to drag me there, uh, James, it is also playing out in this latest uh, storm in a teacup between the French on the one side and the Australians, Americans and Brits on the other side regarding this submarine business that we've been talking about for a week and I'm sure everybody has heard about. People get annoyed, friendships are bruised sometimes badly, but at the end of the day, it's that sheet debit versus credit that dictates what happens in the world, particularly in our so-called developed world. Well, you're right. I'm not going to drag you there. Harry, should we move on to Israel-Palestine, obviously a situation which has dominated Middle East analysis for over a decade? Yes, let's do that. Well, criticism of uh, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas in particular, of course, over the murder of Nizar Banat, and you helped me pronounce that one, uh, an online activist, uh, very distasteful this. Um, but I have also noticed the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, of course, in particular, commenting that it's being used by other players just to put the boot into the Palestinian Authority. So obviously we've had the backdrop of the cancelled elections that were to be the first in 15 years. Mahmoud Abbas himself is, I believe, an octogenarian. So, you know, the, begs the question, where's the voice of the next generation in this? Um, lots to discuss, Harry. Where, where do you want to start? I mean, particularly with the, the murder of, of that activist. Well, yes, there is a lot to discuss, James, but as you well know, being both a friend and uh, an associate colleague, you know that I pretty much earned my political stripes by becoming involved first and foremost with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict before I then uh, trespassed upon all the other uh, (laughs) conflicts that are uh, prevalent in this neck of the woods. And so, therefore, for me, Palestine has a certain singular importance or meaning. And as it does to a lot of people in the Arab and Muslim worlds, people forget when Israel tries to sort of cast aspersions and say, what Palestine? Who are the Palestinians? Who cares about Palestine? People do care because 
Palestine is not only a political conflict, it's not only even history, it's basically something that pretty much describes the state of being, the emotional and intellectual mindset of a lot of Arabs. As I gradually became involved with the Palestinian situation, it was for me also a hope that here is this country, it's not really a country, it still isn't, that is desperately trying to secure its own self-determination, to try and build up a state contiguous next to Israel, to be able to live in security within this state in order to be able to take care of its own citizens, its own people, and finally realize the hope of having a state which it was sort of rather cruelly and in a rude way uh, taken away from it uh, in in the 1940s. So in a sense, there is that fondness for Palestine. And when the Palestinian situation moved, when uh, the then Yasser Arafat, the late Yasser Arafat, Uh, moved from uh, Lebanon to Tunisia and from Tunisia finally with the DOP, the Declaration of Principles, came and lived in Ramallah in the Muqata'a and uh, things began moving forward and then we were talking about a peace process, we were talking about an Oslo process, we were talking about two states living side by side Uh, or as one of my uh, spiritual gurus at the time in Jerusalem, the Latin Rite Catholic Patriarch Michel Sabah used to say all the time, two peoples and three faiths living together. All that was a hope that basically nurtured in me, just as indeed in a lot of people of my generation and older generations who had far more experience than I, that Here is an example of a people who really want to create a country that is secular, that is based on the rule of law, that basically uh, respects the freedoms of others, etc., etc., etc. In other words, almost an exceptionalism in the Arab world. I know some people used to say, our vision for Palestine is what Lebanon was 10 years ago. So in a sense, that was what was happening. But then one thing after another, one disaster after another, one knock after the other, and suddenly you fast forward history and you come to a situation where Yasser Arafat is dead, where the Oslo process and agreements are dead, where the two-state solution is almost dead if the machine is still uh, giving it some life. All this has happened. And then we had Mahmoud Abbas. You said all those years, president, the Oslo process was supposed by now to have a Palestinian state, not only on paper, so the United Nations can recognize it, but one that the whole World Committee would recognize it. None of that has happened. Why? because we fell into that nasty uh, situation where corruption set in, power grabs set in, 
personal interests set in, out went the rule of law from the windows, out went freedom sometimes from the main door. All this was happening, and at the moment, when you look at it, you have two Palestines, one in Gaza and one in the West Bank. You have a leadership of the Palestinians in Ramallah that basically is, as you said, an octogenarian, is the president of the Palestinian Authority. He's been there for far too long. He is basically ruling Palestine now in a triumvirate of him, Abu Mazin, as well as uh, two others in uh, the Palestinian political echelons. A lot of people would suggest that those two key stakeholders are Majid Faraj and Hussein al-Sheikh, and they are in control of this whole uh, situation, and they're all playing a three-dimensional chess game with the fate and the future of all Palestinians. And of course, when all this happens, when self-interest, when political interest, when money, when corruption, when pressures from Israel on the one hand and other countries such as the West on the other, and Trump himself was responsible, guilty for a lot of what uh, happens uh, today. When all that happened, of course, we get situations like Nizar Banat in the West Bank. We get his murder, we get violation of human rights, we get the police going down and basically beating people who are demonstrating without any weapons peacefully. All this is happening. But what has also happened in the last year or so are things that have highlighted the unity of Palestinian grassroots, irrespective of how the political echelons have changed over the years. So you saw, the world saw, I think, what happened in Sheikh Jarrah with the people, the families coming out and protesting loudly via social media, via the the media, the EU Consuls General of Jerusalem went and met with them in order to prevent Israel from evacuating a lot of the residents of Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem, uh, from evacuating them from their homes. So Israeli Jews would come and uh, take their places. We saw the same happening in another neighborhood in Silwan. We saw the euphoria, the sense of pride that was felt by Palestinians uh, when the six escapees left or fled from the Gilboa uh, prison in the northern uh, part of the uh, West Bank. All this was happening and all this was indicating one thing, that Palestinian grassroots, be they inside the green line, in other words, uh, Palestinians who hold Israeli passports, or those in the West Bank, those in Gaza, and most importantly, the forgotten Palestinians, a lot of them in the diaspora, all came together to say, we have to defend this vision, this idea that I was talking to you, which drew me into the Palestinian uh, conflict. I'm not Palestinian, I'm Armenian. But I have a, a an empathy with the struggle of Palestinians who want to retrieve 
their lands and who want to uh, to build their own country so as interestingly enough as the political echelons became more corrupt less uh, effective with so many internecine uh, struggles and squabbles the outcome of that was that conversely the grassroots palestinians began realizing that it's not those people who are going to free Palestine. We have to do it with our own hands. And that takes me back to the ethos of the first intifada that took place in the mid to late 80s, which was very different from the second one, which was weaponized, co-opted by political vested interests, etc., etc. So we're seeing this gulf growing bigger and bigger between the political elite in Palestine and between the grassroots people. And anybody you talk to, anybody you uh, have a webinar with, anybody whose blog you read, whether openly or more subtly, hints at this schism between the two and that the future of Palestine is no longer being decided by X, Y, and Z, but by the people of Palestine. Well, I mean, maybe that disconnect will be bridged in time. I mean, I won't add anything to that, Harry. I think that was very well done. Suffice to say, though, every time we talk about Palestine, the potential for a state, self-determinism, I just keep, I just have this vision in my mind of just, you know, a person in fairly deep, choppy water treading water, trying to keep their head above the waves and uh, as things pull them down and crash down from above. And it seems to me that that's all we ever talk about, really. But there's a certain stubbornness and a certain resilience, I think, that, that you know, I hope will lead to those those very aspirations of self-determinism. But it's just, I don't know, it gets me down every time we talk about it. I'm not going to lie. You're absolutely right. I mean, don't you think it gets me down as well? Why do you think there's so many people who work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict who have to recharge their batteries all the time because the batteries get empty quite quickly after the the levels of struggle in different directions that they have to undertake. And I think not only of people like me who have the luxury to live in comfortable and semi-democratic uh, setups, whereas they themselves are living under the most unrelenting occupation that is cruel, that according to Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem organization is an apartheid system they are actually there at the fir- on the first line, the forefront of the struggle for a better Palestine. We are the second or third battalions who are trying to help from the outside. But it is, it is very difficult, and you use a very interesting word because it's an unquenchable spirit of freedom that pretty much defines the Palestinian frame of mind. But you use the word resilient, and I would accept resilient, although it's a word that is used more uh, commonly in the Lebanese context. And by the way, the Lebanese don't like it that much because they themselves are fed up with being resilient. They want results. So in a sense, uh, this is what's happening uh, today. And if we continue 
in this direction. If the Biden administration, if the Israelis with Benny Gantz going and meeting uh, Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah and with the noises coming out of the new Israeli, well, newish, Israeli government of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid in Jerusalem, that they want to sort of keep the Palestinian Authority happy by giving them more money and a few freedoms, that is not going to be the solution because uh, a VIP card here, a few million there, is no longer going to satisfy uh, Palestinian aspirations. And at the end of the day, uh, James, uh, we're talking about land. You have a piece of land, and it's happened in Sheikh Jarrah. I'm sure you saw that picture of one house, one house, where half of it is inhabited by Palestinians, the other half by Israeli settlers in the same house. I mean, how much more ridiculous can this occupation become that we are now talking about this and you know but harry that that also reminds me a little bit of hebron where if you want to get out onto a certain street you literally have to climb down a ladder out of your back window absolutely i don't know when you visited palestine and israel did you go to hebron i did yeah okay so you will have seen it with your own eyes Uh, Mm. the situation there of having a whole israeli behemoth uh, protecting a few radical ultra-radical settlers at the expense of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Hebronites uh, living in that uh, part of the world. So in a sense, it's uh, really sad what's happening. And when you see that the Palestinian political leadership is distancing itself increasingly more, like other Arab countries, by the way. This is what is sad. I always thought that Palestine would be different from the usual Middle Eastern or Levantine way of running a country. But it seems to me that they've been there for so long uh, that they have actually pretty much adopted a lot of bad habits that are quite visible in other countries. You rule uh, by the stick you hardly ever use the carrot. So in a sense, that's what's happening. And Israel, on the other hand, inside, is managing the occupation. It has absolutely no incentive to give back uh, the land. And uh, America seems to say, yes, uh, I might say a word here or a word there that might displease you. But in the final analysis, I'm your friend. You do whatever you want. You have carte blanche. And this is This is why one day, maybe when you're in the mood, James, maybe we can talk about something that is quite original, perhaps. And to talk about something, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Homestead Act in the US. It came about in 1862, at the end of the Civil War in the United States, and the then US President Abraham Lincoln signed that act. And what, and what was it? It was basically that it allowed landless Americans and settlers to have to own 160 acres of land to build on in places like, I don't know, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri. And uh, that act, by the way, was repealed in 1976, finally. But sometimes in my own head, I compare and contrast the Israeli settlers' movements 
in Palestinian lands and the colonization of Palestinian lands with what happened with the Homestead Act in the United States. So one day, if you want to stop talking about events and want to sort of take out your pipe and do a sort of intellectual conversation, I'm quite happy to do contrast and compare with the Homestead Act. And how do the Americans who had their own Homestead Act, how do they see the settlement movement in Israel? I think that would be absolutely fascinating, actually, Harry. So let's, yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? It would at least change the dynamic of our conversations, because much as whenever you speak on the matter, you speak with knowledge and with eloquence. It probably is about time we, we, we changed our approach, if, if not just once in a number of podcasts. We, we could do it once, couldn't we? Yeah, we could certainly do that. Why don't we do that? And uh, since you are the all-powerful producer, you decide. <laughs> well, I don't know. You're pretty good at asking and answering questions on my behalf. Which is good. Um, well, I, w- I would say very quietly now you've mentioned it. Shall we segue to the resilient Lebanese? I shouldn't use that word now. I know how they feel about it. I suppose it is a bit of a pat on the head rather than anything tangible, isn't it? But there's um, a new PM, one with uh, a bucket load of money. And last time we spoke, we talked about obviously uh, shortages of fuel, uh, p- people living under the poverty line that million plus Syrian refugees, not to mention the Palestinians and the the eternally displaced off the back of that horrific blast in the the poor area. So many negative things, phrases like electricity refugees, people gathering under streetlights. Goodness me, it's been very visually um, dramatic for for the poor Lebanese people. New Prime Minister, though, and perhaps the one thing that that helps get Lebanon out of the the, the mire that it's stuck in is uh, cash. Yes, James, cash, and cash is the, is, the, is the name of the game. Interestingly enough, you are right. Finally, finally, after 13 months, the Lebanese managed to agree on a name, and it was pretty much a compromise name, uh, of Najib Miqati to become prime minister and lead the country toward elections uh, next year, parliamentary elections. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, today, Monday, as we do this uh, Middle East analysis, a plenary session of the Lebanese parliament has taken place. There was a session in the morning and there will be another one in the evening uh, to discuss the ministerial policy statement. I call it the mission statement uh, at the UNESCO Palace in Beirut. So things are slowly moving uh, forward. And I smiled. You don't see me because this is an audio podcast. I smiled when you said loads and loads or bucket loads of money, because one of my favorite journalists, and you know this by now, I suspect, is Maya Jbaili, who used to be correspondent in Iraq and is now back reporting for TRF in Lebanon, she wrote another one of her very moving articles in which she said two things work in Lebanon these days in the middle of all the misery faced by most of the people. One, wasta. Wasta means personal connections, the people you know, and wads of money. And she isn't that she isn't that far off because the economy is really bad. The majority of the people in Lebanon are really, really uh, suffering, uh, James. Let me give you a couple of uh, numbers. In 2019, the richest, that's only two years ago, the 
richest 10% own 70% of the country's personal wealth. Reminds me of Great Britain, doesn't it? According to the UN Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia, uh, ESQA, which uh, His Royal Highness Prince Hassan of Jordan often refers to. At the time, then, 42% of the households in Lebanon suffered from what is known in uh, uh, professional jargon as multidimensional poverty. In other words, they were deprived of at least one essential service, such as healthcare, electricity, or shelter. All this according to ESQA. Two years since that financial uh, crisis erupted in 2019, which is why I gave you those figures, that number has almost doubled from 42% to 82%. So you can well imagine the state of affairs for the Lebanese, most of them in, uh, in the uh, country, who are suffering, who are suffering, they themselves, the Lebanese, until 2017, 2015, yeah, people would dispute this figure because there are different chapters in the history of Lebanese uh, political life. But if we go back, at, say, a decade, a lot of the Lebanese would say, we're doing fairly okay, were it not for the uh, Syrian refugees you mentioned yourself, James, the one million who came over from Syria when uh, Bashar al-Assad started uh, firing at everybody who disagreed with him. Uh, if it weren't for those uh, refugees, and if it weren't even for those Palestinian refugees who are still there from 67 and onward, we would, we're okay. Now that has changed. Now it's no longer the Syrian refugees or the Palestinian refugees or the few Iraqi refugees from the Iraqi wars who are suffering. It is the Lebanese themselves. So much so that now the the ventilation system, the oxygen bag for a lot of the Lebanese who can't find medicine, who can't find food, are the Lebanese in the diaspora who are take, buying tickets wherever they are, Paris, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, wherever they are. They're buying tickets. They're cramming all sorts of medicine, food, whatever in their uh, suitcases going to Lebanon, giving it to their families, spending the weekend there and coming back to their uh, resident countries. It is really, really bad. And Najib Miqati, what is he supposed to do? Is he going to resolve or solve the problems of Lebanon, which are largely confessional, some of them self-inflicted? No, he's not. Because in my opinion, humbly, I would suggest to my Lebanese friends and associates that he is as much part of the problem as he is part of the solution. And a lot of the Lebanese would incidentally agree with me here. And we come here to what I was talking to you about uh, Palestine, where you have the ruler and the ruled, the grassroots and the political echelons. So in a sense, he's not going to do all this. But, but, if after two years of a bad pandemic, of uh, economic meltdown, of political freefall, if 
he manages to bring some of that money you referred to from the IMF, from the EU, from the uh, CEDR chapters, from wherever, to give some oxygen for the Lebanese to breathe, to be able to live a little bit decently. And he manages to keep the country quiet without any internal or external wars and conflicts leading up to the elections in 2022, at least, at least the Lebanese will have a breather. It will not solve their problems because after the elections, they will still have the same uh, problems. But at least they will be able to breathe for a minute and recharge those batteries I was talking about when we were discussing Palestine earlier. I tell you what, there aren't many white knights on steeds here. They've all got something in the closet that's a bit less savoury as far as the people are concerned, that's for sure. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, uh, James. And for the sake of clarity and brevity, although brevity is not my trademark, uh, let me just basically give you six headings which our listeners could work on. What has made... Lebanon where it is today, because you have to look at Lebanon as a country that in 2017 was hoping to be part of the Arab uprisings, to change the regime, to uh, to get a new political, political faces into the uh, country. All that has not really succeeded and doesn't seem to be succeeding, just as it didn't succeed in countries like Syria, in countries like uh, Egypt, uh, in countries even like Sudan and Yemen and uh, Libya and others. I mean, the whole Arab, even Tunisia these days. In other words, the whole Arab revolutionary uprisings that people, illustrious journalists and analysts like Rami Khouri and others were talking about has not happened. Why? Because counter-revolutionary forces have managed to pour money and effort into squelching, quashing, stopping those uh, counter-revolution, those movements, because they did not want their own positions and powers to be affected. Lebanon is also one of those countries at the moment where its efforts at reforming itself fell short because the political and confessional parties disagreed with it and maneuvered the realities in such a way that this didn't happen. The economy was in meltdown. You had an unbelievably criminal port explosion that pretty much shook up everything. You had a COVID pandemic. You have local leaderships with a lack of uh, vision, despite what the grassroots is saying. And you have the counter-revolutionary uh, forces. Put all these together, then you can understand why Lebanon today is in the sad state it is in, pretty much like some other countries in this backyard of mine again. I tell you what, squelching, squashing. When you're discussing the counter-revolutionary forces, Harry, some lovely onomatopoeia there. I don't know if that was your, your intention, but you're building a bit of a soundscape for our listeners as well. So this is a very much a multifaceted Middle East analysis. There you now go. I, I know that we are fast closing in on the hour mark, which is our sort of unsaid 
duration for Middle East analysis. We're and I do going, st- we're not going to be able to stop <laughs> then. Well, I, I do have one more point before I offer you the space for, for a couple of final thoughts. And that is for us to move towards North Africa, uh-huh. Morocco, in this case. Yeah. Now, I know there have been some elections. You're going to know far more than me about this because I have been looking at some of your tweets and posts and, and learning a bit more about particularly the, the sort of relations with Algeria. But we'll come on to that in a minute. A 50.3% turnout, which is about 7% up on the elections of 2016, so respectable turnout. Now, just so I've got it straight, I believe the, the, the Islamists as such lost ground and the Liberal parties made some gains. But the situation in Morocco, is it not, is that the king holds power and picks a prime minister, you know, from, from the, the winning party, as it were. You know, next time we do a Middle East analysis, I'm going to be asking the questions and letting you give the answers. You you pretty much summarize the headlines for what happened in Morocco, and you are right. You said uh, the Islamist party lost. The Islamist party was slaughtered in the in the elections, from having a majority all the way to be, to coming fifth or sixth in the results. The Islamist party, by the way, for the people who know a little bit about Morocco, is the Justice and Development Party, the PGD. They lost power. They had retained power in the two previous elections. They were the ones who were running the show. They completely were slaughtered, were butchered in this uh, election. And the people who really sort of zoomed up were the National Rally of Independence, the NRI. And this is why the king, who pretty much you are right, in Morocco people talk about the Mahzen, which is basically the king and his entourage. The king has already appointed Aziz Akhanoush to form the next uh, the next government. Now, another billionaire, Harry, no less. He is a, another billionaire, just like Najib Mukati in Lebanon. So, uh, and like a lot of the other Arab rulers and a lot of the other Arab countries, the people are dying from hunger and they've got millions in the bank. So, uh, well, it can happen in the West as well. Trump, yeah. So, well, not only Trump, but I'm not going to go there. I don't want to be impeached. <laughs> so... The PJD, the PJD lost. The NRI is now controlling it. Why did this happen? This happened because of the multifaceted consequences of one, COVID, which impacted a lot. The previous government was not able to to pursue a good uh, policy line or roadmap on COVID. The worsening relations with uh, Algeria following normalization and uh, uh, the you know the whole thing about Morocco being one of the countries that normalized with Israel relations with Algeria worsened and Algeria is the big neighbor next to Morocco uh, and US recognition during Trumpian times of Moroccan sovereignty over the western Sahara as well as relations getting a little bit more uh, bruised with Europe, such as with uh, Germany over Western Sahara and with uh, Spain over the perceived uh, weaponization of the migrant movements coming uh, into Spain from Morocco and other North African countries. So uh, the, the Islamists lost, to use your term, not only due to the new electoral law that the king uh, wanted to impose, But I think there is something far more subtle 
that happened in Morocco, and a lot of Moroccan analysts would, I believe, agree with me. And that is the loss of touch, the loss of understanding between the uh, PJD and its grassroots supporters. You see, in the past, during the previous mandate, the party had managed to find a middle ground. On the one hand, keeping the king and the monarchy happy, and on the other hand, keeping the uh, grassroots supporters happy. But that disappeared gradually before the elections. And the Islamist parties across the whole region, including those in Morocco, are known for the strength of their core supporters. And this distancing, this gulf that was forming was a strategic error, in my opinion, uh, committed by the uh, leadership of the Islamist party of the PJD in uh, Morocco. I personally think, and we will see this in the weeks and months ahead, how things will pan out, I think that the current RNI-led coalition will return Morocco to familiar political grounds. In other words, a loyalist party leading the government. This will create unity within the government and, more importantly, between the government and the monarchy. But what it also does is it removes a buffer between the monarchy and the government that could absorb popular Uh, dissatisfaction. And in my opinion, this is going to be Morocco's key political challenge as they move forward with the new prime minister in the years ahead. But the normalization of ties between several Arab states and Israel represents the main key to understanding the post-Islamist era, not only in Morocco, but across the region. And This is, in my opinion, also a recent point of contention in the inter-Maghrebi rivalry, pushing Algiers and Rabat, in other words, Algeria and Morocco, into two different regional blocks. So basically, you were right. One party lost, one party won. The levels of surprise were quite high. Now we have a different ballgame in the country, and we're going to see what happens, but what is happening in Morocco has in one way or another also manifested itself in other uh, Arab countries. And the question is, will they learn the lesson from this and what will happen in the future? The region is far too unpredictable at the moment. The MENA region, the Levant, the North Africa is far too unpredictable these days for anybody except the most sophisticated analysts to be able to predict where uh, we are going without eating some humble pie. And as you know, I've eaten a lot of omelets and a lot of humble pies with you. Well, me too, certainly with my line of questioning on occasion. Um, well, I, I, I too am watching the clock, Harry, but I can't resist a quick question that may end up being a dumb question. So I will happily have the put down if that's the case. I partially also think that maybe this result looks a little bit more palatable to those tourist nations, does it not? Not least the UK, where we traditionally have loads of people flying off to Agadir or wherever else. Is tourism post-COVID a a part of perhaps the king's retweaking of of the way elections are handled? James, this is either a very innocent question or a very clever question. 
because you're absolutely right, spot on. Uh, tourism has become one of the issues that the Moroccans are worried about because Morocco is not a rich country. It's a poor country. It's got history. It's got civilization. It's got tribes. It's got conflicts. It's got a lot of things, but doesn't have a lot of money. It's got also nice food, nice cuisine. But tourism is one of the issues, and the king was worried that a combination of COVID and uh, what is perceived in the West, because we in the West largely do not really understand. When we use terms like Islamist or whatever, we don't really understand what that means in the political as well as religious spheres, because they're not necessarily uh, the same. But that's another time, another day. So yes, tourism plays a large role in all of this, and the king is keenly, acutely conscious that his country, during the pandemic particularly, uh, has lost a lot of revenues and therefore is trying to make the country more appealing uh, to foreign tourists, largely Western tourists, who are the only ones who can spend money. And by the West, I don't necessarily mean the European Union, the United Kingdom. I also mean uh, countries like Russia and others as well who go and spend a lot of money because they can afford it. And just to make you smile, although again, I can't see you smiling, many, many years ago, I've told you this, I've gloated about it, if you want, that I learned about the MENA and Gulf regions way before the Arab revolutionary uprisings of 2010-2011 and the next second wave post-2017. Not from the politics of it, but because legally I was in charge of the whole region's intellectual property uh, work, uh, and therefore I was flying in and out of these uh, countries as being the one responsible for all the legal work uh, for these countries. So I learned a lot about these. And why am I telling you this other than gloating is because I also love horse riding, as you might remember. And I have been horse riding in the past when I could. Now, if I do it, I'll probably die on the horse uh, in Casablanca. And it's it's wonderful memories that uh, I have of that time. And yes, Morocco is a very is a very nice country to visit. You know what, Harry? I now have two, and with absolutely no disrespect, slightly unwanted visions in my mind. Vladimir Putin topless on a horse, and you in Casablanca. <laughs> Me in Casablanca, but I'm not uh, topless because I don't go for that kind of uh, show-off attitude. I was enjoying myself so much horse riding because I love horses, and uh, uh, in Casablanca, I mean, it's almost a postcard picture of horse riding for people. I, I really liked it, and that's one of the memories that I have. There are other uh, other. Uh, memories, you're not such a good producer because you never sort of dig out the personal stories and the analogies I was talking to you about when I talked about the Homestead Act. Rather, we we get carried away with the politics of the region because we both love the politics and the region in different and varying ways. So uh, one one of these days, uh, James, you really must find time because I appreciate the enormous time you spend on these monthly audio podcasts from your own free time. So maybe one one of these days we can do a little bit like tell stories. 
Oh no, I, I agree, and it's it's sort of been long overdue. I'd agree with that as well. So, my um, autobiography before I pop my clogs. Well, if if you if you want me to help you with that, I mean, I've what, just written down popping the clogs or the autobiography. <laughs> I would say either, but that would probably result in some criminal proceedings. Doctor Hagopian on a horse. Is a lawyer as well. She would tell you, James, be careful where you're going with that line of questioning. Yeah, I'd have a, a finger wagging in the background. I think, <laughs> bare, bare minimum. But no, Doctor Hagopian on a horse. A note has been made. We will revisit at some point if people don't think we've gone completely bonkers. Now, Harry, final thought. And I have to say, are you going to leave us on a positive note? More or less on a positive note. Yes. I'm going to share with you, never want to be outdone by your questions, James. I'm going to leave you with two afterthoughts. The first afterthought that I'm going to leave you with is a lot of people, I think, at least those who are on social media platforms, will have known that the Time magazine came up with its 100 top list of influential people in 2021. A lot of people were there, uh, from uh, all the way from uh, Naftali Bennett, the new prime minister of Israel, to uh, Nasrin Sotoudeh, who is the Iranian human rights lawyer who was arrested in 2019 because of her work on uh, on the rights of women in uh, Iran. And there I want to plug uh, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe as well, who is still detained in Iran. But for me, the two people who caught my eye in this 100 top list of the Time magazine cover were the brother and sister twins, Muna and Muhammad al-Kurd. Both of them, of course, they're twins. So both of them have the same age, 23 years old. Key figures on social media And what were they? Who are they? These are the young brother-sister who did a wonderful job with the Sheikh Jarrah hashtag when the Israelis were trying to evacuate the residents of those houses in East Jerusalem uh, and replace them with uh, Israeli settlers. They were fantastic. And I would recommend that anybody who hasn't heard of them, that you search their names and you will find tons and tons of stuff on the internet about them. Muna is the sister, M-U-N-A, and Muhammad is the brother. They're two Palestinians from East Jerusalem who fought with words and with political impressions against the takeover of their houses and lands in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. And for me, that is one beautiful way of showing what Palestinian resistance, the word is sumud in Arabic, what Palestinian resistance means. It's not about empty words. It's not about the use of fireworks. It's about knowing how to talk and how to address the West about the plight of Palestinians. So that's my first afterthought. Please check them out. They're wonderful young people and they deserve uh, a tick or a like or a tweet or whatever it is you do. The well other, done. That's a positive one, Harry. That is a positive one. The second positive one I want to share with you and with our listeners as they're beginning to get tired of my voice is Little Amal. Now, who is Little Amal, James? 
Little Amal, I thought you would know this one because you have tentacles everywhere. Little Amal is a, I think, three and a half meter uh, tall puppet that represents a young Syrian refugee child who has been traveling 5,000 miles. In other words, some 8,000 uh, kilometers for those who listen to me in Europe and the Middle East and Gulf. This puppet is traveling from Turkey to Greece to Italy to the Vatican. And I know you work with the Catholic Church also. So when, when uh, this puppet went to uh, the Vatican, the person who welcomed the puppet, in other words, the symbol of the Syrian refugee child everywhere, was Cardinal Cherny, who is responsible for the migration movements, and also shook hands with the Pope Francis. Then on to France, on to Switzerland, Belgium, and the United Kingdom. So all this is being done. Why is little Amal traveling 5,000 miles? Because she is in support of Syrian refugees worldwide. And this is why her travels are described as the walk, W-A-L-K. I think it's great. And the motto that this puppet and the people behind the puppet who are organizing it, who are making it a reality, have adopted a motto which says, do not forget us. And in a country like Syria, that's been devastated literally devastated, with neighborhoods razed to the ground, with millions of people internally displaced, equally millions outside the country, I think little Amal is a source of hope. Do not forget us, she says. And guess what, James? Amal, her name, the name of this puppet, in Arabic means hope. So all the hope to her, all the hope to the Syrians, and all the hope to the Palestinians resisting and fighting for their struggles. And both of them, both Muna and Muhammad al-Kurd, as well as Little Amal, in my opinion, are positive and constructive afterthoughts. Yeah, indeed. And I, and I thought the latter, Little Amal, was ringing a bell, so you, you got me scraping a bit there, but I do, I do recall the story now. And if you want to know more, walkwithamal.org. There you would go, be, you see. Would be where to go, yes, indeed. James Abbott, you are fast. Well, you know, <laughs> only, only when I'm showing my own deficiencies, I think, Harry. <laughs> now, talking of which, um, seeing as you've just named me, we've decided, haven't we, to run a, a slightly different picture with our podcast this time round. We would normally find a shot of one of the countries, probably the, the one we're talking about as our lead piece, but this time we're going to put up a picture of ourselves, Harry. Is that a bit vain or what? That is not vain at all. Everybody is so bloody vain anyway, so why shouldn't we do a little bit of that? I mean, we spent uh, over an hour talking, and with all due respect to every other uh, observer or analyst, I think you and I did a good job uh, this month, as we do with Middle East analysis every month. So I think it would be good not to show off, hey, guys, look what we look like. I'm sure they can find lots of photos uh, of us uh, on the internet, but it's basically to tell the people here we are and to build a kind of a rapport, a familiarity that does not breed contempt, by the way, a familiarity with our listeners and with our followers to know, hey, 
This is who they are. So this is Harry. Maybe we know him. We know James Abbott in this context a little less. So here he is as well. So it's good to know uh, that this is the theme that runs Middle East analysis once uh, a month and promises to have a short uh, episode and ends up doing one that is longer than an hour. It's a whopper, Harry. But there you go. You, you've coerced us into visual accountability so everyone can see who I am as well as seeing who you are. Um, Harry, look, long time, yes. Good content, though, to my mind. I hope that's not sounding like we're blowing blowing our own trumpet on that one, but good content. And I appreciate very much our listeners' patience. I hope, I hope you've got something out of it, of course. We've talked about Afghanistan. We've talked about Israel-Palestine. We've talked about Morocco. We've talked about Lebanon. Two very interesting final thoughts from you there, Harry. It's been packed, but it has been strong in my view. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you to you as well as ever. It's a pleasure. It's not only a duty. I feel it's a duty in one sense because I want to share some of my thoughts with my listeners. There are some important listeners uh, who listen to our podcast. So I salute them as I salute everybody else uh, from my local uh, parish priest all the way to the think tanks who listen to us. Greetings and salam to you all. But also... It's a pleasure because the interaction, the way we do this, as a dear friend of mine would say, there is chemistry here. And indeed, there is chemistry, which hopefully makes this podcast that takes some of your free time once a month is worthwhile for them as well. I hope so, too. Certainly a pleasure to do it. So until next month, Harry, I know you're on your travels, so safe travels. Take good care and uh, do join us in October. And stay safe. Uh, COVID is not over, guys. Yeah, very good point. Until next time, Harry, thanks ever so much.